will sing a song, a soldier's song, with cheering, rousing chorus, as round our blazing fires we throng the starry heavens o'er us, impatient for the Hello. And welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. That's right. Uh, I am your host, Joe. I am the co-host, Nick. And thank you for surviving our last incredibly depressing episode. It was long. It was longer than all of them. Yeah. No, it was actually second longest after really? when I had Tom on. Yeah. Oh, okay. But that's mostly our fault for not having any limitations on time before we went in. And the last like 20 or 30 minutes, I think it was Twitter beef. It was uh, <laughs> because of who we are. We have a lot of Twitter beef. Yeah. Um, so today. I did enjoy that episode, though. I liked it a lot. You know, it's still the highest ranked episode we've ever made. Nice. <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous in retrospect, <laughs> seeing how I have put dozens of hours of research into some of these episodes and i literally went into that one blind and it is still outranks all my hard work but that's cool thanks tom <laughs> uh so uh today we're gonna head back to the continent of africa and uh as always uh we have to play the groundwork so today the battle or siege of jadoville and uh not going to pronounce it like that the whole episode. It is it's called Jadoville. Yeah, it's uh, French <laughs> Belgian, but yeah. uh, you know, the, all the documentaries just call it Jadotville. Yeah, it does. Uh, do. So I'm going to play the card of American here and I'm going to call it Jadoville. We got to lay the foundation here. Uh, and as someone that's minoring in French, that will bother me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, ah, the bubbly sound of old crow hitting the glass. Yes. <laughs> That's right, old crow. We still love you, even though you still neglect us. Uh, Sponsor us. Yeah. Buy the book. Uh, pass, so Pass me the crow. <laughs> so today we go to the Congo. Um, more importantly, we go to the Katanga conflict, which is also known as the Congo crisis, which began in 1960. Um the colony of Belgian Congo, formerly known as the Congo Free State, demanded their independence from their brutal Belgian overlords. Now, we're not going to go super, super into the Belgian colonialism. Uh, just know that a Belgian king named Leopold II did absolutely terrible things to the Congolese people, which included mass rape, mutilation, and the murders of millions of people, all in the name of securing Congo's vast rubber crop for his own personal bank account. Everything we cover Africa is pretty depressing. Yeah. Uh, for more on this asshole, I actually urge you to listen to a different podcast uh, called Behind the Bastards. He covered um, Leopold II in a two-parter, and it is magnificent. Uh, he goes in-depth, uh, which we will not be doing because we are military history, not just history in general. Uh, anyway, the country gained its independence on June 30th, 1960. And absolutely zero preparations have been made by the Belgian authorities for this. Um, most countries who uh, break their colonial change n chains not in a revolutionary war like, you know, America did. Right. Uh, the colonial masters will lay some groundwork. Um, they'll try, try like pick somebody out, uh, teach them how to run the place. And most places will actually uh, like India is a good example where uh, the British kind of had an Indian uh, infrastructure built up. So when they fucked off 
back to the island, there was some kind of groundwork. They had some good OJT in place. Yeah. Not the case in Congo. Uh, There was no Congolese who ran the government. Zero. It's all Belgians. Um, They were also barred from any real education. Um, On the day of independence, less than a dozen people in the entire country had a college education. Nice. Less than a dozen. And I I didn't look up the total population. I'm going to assume it's like 50 million. Less than a dozen. Nobody had any idea how to run any institutions. And this included the army. Uh, So almost immediately, a mutiny broke out in that army. Uh, The reason for this was that the Congolese army at the time was actually not the Congolese army. It was something called the Force Publique. Uh, The Force Publique was ran by whites. Uh, It was part army, part police, and established during the reign of King Leopold II. They were the operative arm of Belgian oppression. All the murders, mutilations, etc. that I talked about before, that was all done by the Force Publique. Mm. Um, so an, another thing that they had to do, so uh, the Belgians were so cheap, well, not the Belgians entirely, but King Leopold, because this wasn't so much a property of the of the country of Belgium as it was the personal property of King Leopold II. Right. It was like owning stocks. Yeah, um, He was uh, pe- pinching so many pennies that when the force public killed somebody, they ha- uh, if they fired a bullet, they had to bring a hand. What the fuck? <laughs> to prove that they killed somebody with that bullet. You can assume what happened. Uh, we kind of talked about it in the Emu War. When you put a price yeah, on okay. something, people are going to milk that system. And, yeah. and what the Force Publique did was just chop off random people's hands. You got a lot of one-handed people running around. Right. So what I'm trying to get at is the Force Publique was fucking pure evil. Um, and the Force Publique, like most things, was commanded by a white Belgian. And... Just like every other officer of that force, uh, the only leadership that the army that in the force public was allowed to be black was uh, junior NCOs. Mm. So uh, that's non-commissioned officers. We're talking corporals, sergeants. They're not in charge of everyday anything. Um, his name was Emil Janssens. Uh, he decided that independence or not, shit was going to be how it had always been. He actually gathered all his black NCOs together and informed them that nothing would change. And as far as he was concerned, they were still subhuman. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) They were still privates. Yeah. You can assume how this went. The men who had actually been expecting promotions and pay increases, which had actually been promised to them when independence came, on par with their white colleagues, got pissed, uh, which fueled the mutiny. It turned into a riot that eventually spread throughout the entire country. Um, And Congo's prime minister, a guy named Patrice Lumumba, tried to calm everybody down when the forest was officially turned into the National Army of the Congo and Janssen's got shit canned. Uh, He put a Congolese man in charge named Mobutu Sese Seko, who is a complete and utter bastard in other ways. Sweet pronunciation. Um, He also promoted all black soldiers at least by one rank. Um, to include filling out the officer class uh, by with senior NCOs. It didn't slow down the revolt at all. Uh, it actually got worse as the oh. army's anger torn, turned towards the white population uh, that had not yet had the brains to run away. <laughs> um, well, they're fucking it, smacking Belgian waffles. You have to assume it's been 80 years and the kind of oppression that happened in the Congo Free State, like you don't see many, like the only other thing I can compare the Congo Free State to is like, a fucking Nazi ghetto. Like you were bound to be executed. If you're a black man, if you laughed in front of a white man. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, if you didn't farm enough rubber, they would kill your son, kill your wife. Like the kind of oppression that was done. Like it's, it was so bad. No, I don't see how that would make it me work any faster. That's either that or die, I guess. Uh, the The oppression was so bad. Other European monarchies are like, dude, Leopold, what the fuck? That's how you know it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, what other assholes are telling you? You're a bigger asshole. Yeah. Um, so it didn't take long for Belgium seeing the situation spiral out of control to, to deploy <coughs> soldiers right back to the Congo to protect their white population. If you're not keeping track, they gave Congo independence and then immediately violated sovereignty by invading less than three weeks later. Yeah. Um, almost immediately, Belgian forces and Congolese forces began fighting each other all over the country uh, because now the Congolese were independent of their white former overlords. Right. They had guns and they're standing over there. They're going to shoot at each other. Um, afterwards, around 10,000 Belgians who are still actually working for the Congolese government fucked off back home and left the government pretty much completely able to, unable to function. They were the only ones left in the entire country that knew how to operate a government. <laughs> um, now, Lamumba is actually considered like an African hero, and he's an incredibly smart man. Um, but one guy can't run a government. Right. Uh, and he immediately started running into problems. The white population, of which there was... Tens of thousands after nearly 80 years of colonial rule fled towards the provinces of Kantanga and South Kasai, which then unsurprisingly declared independence from the newly independent Congo with full Belgian support and urging under the leadership of Moses Shambe. Uh, now I'm talking about Kantanga, not South Kasai. South Kasai is kind of a minor of the two, and Shambe was in charge of Kantanga. Um, the area was incredibly mineral rich, and Shambay's new government was backed heavily by mining companies who were terrified of the prospect of having their, ca- having their cash cow nationalized by the socialist Lumumba. All of these mining companies were owned by Belgians, if you hadn't figured that out yet. Uh, it was around this time that the United Nations got involved. The UN was led by a guy named Dag Hammerschultz as its general secretary. Mm. He saw the opportunity for the UN to assert itself on the international stage. So would this be their first, air quotes, official mission? Um, or I don't think it was their first, but it was definitely their largest. Right. Because the whole concept of peacekeeping, and more importantly, as you'll see, is something that became known as peace enforcement, uh, was new to the point that nobody really knew what to do with it. And it was legally in a gray zone. Right. Um, the UN as a whole wasn't really sure what to do here. Yeah. But they just knew if they plopped some They're international kind of soldiers in down. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And because the UN is led by politicians, not military commanders, um, which is one of the, the many reasons why the UN has had issues from the Katanga conflict to present day, they just weren't prepared. Right. Um, he, but he saw the opportunity to to show how important the UN is because you have to think the UN is kind of new and they're trying to show that they're not the league of nations. Right. You know, um, so the UN extraordinary gentleman. No, not at all. I pretend the movie doesn't exist. Like every good person should. You say that almost was it past three episodes? Yes. I stand by. This is the hill. I'll die. This is the hill. I will die. Chappie was terrible. Go fuck yourself. Uh, the, the UN passed Resolution 143, which or, ordered all Belgian soldiers out of the Congo to be replaced by a UN commanded force that would not take sides, but would instead try to stop the fighting in general. This is not what Labumba wanted when he invited the UN there. Uh, he wanted the UN's help to help cr- 
crush the breakaway states and unite the Congo. Right. Uh, he wanted them to help win the fight, not stop it. So Lumumba, not getting help from anybody else, turned turn towards the Soviets for assistance. <laughs> um, and soon, thousands of Soviet military advisors were flooding into the country to train, lead, and advise his new army. And it should be noted that Lumumba was not a communist. Yeah, how do you do that? Because <laughs> as soon as you show a little communist, fucking Soviets are like, yeah, come on. That's what help it comes out. out. That, that's what it is. is, uh, is he's, he was smart enough to know that the USSR would support anybody who would even take a passing glance by a book written by Marx or Engel, and he right. took advantage of it. Um, unfortunately, Lumumba's choice was a little nearsighted. Um, it was a calculated risk to help uh, the unity of his country. But it turns out Lumumba was bad at math. Um, this is the 1960s smack dab in the frost of the Cold War. He should have yeah. known by inviting the USSR somewhere was a surefire right at the U.S. involved as well. And the U.S. was not involved in the Congo at all until this point. Um, so why do you think the U.S. would care about a country that the Belgians made damn sure was a little more than a backwater when they left it? Because somebody was bad at math. Mm. <laughs> think larger and more mushroom cloudy. <laughs> Uh, well, one of the main sources and minerals of Katanga and the Congo was uranium. The stuff used in nuclear bombs, if you're not caught up with that. Uh, more specifically, Katanga supplied all of the uranium that the United States used in the Manhattan Holy Project. Shit. To include the bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima. Holy fuck. Um, so yes, if if you're doing the math in your head... Slave labor. I'm not good at math. Slave labor was this was the backbone of the Manhattan Project <laughs> because oh yeah, you have to remember this Manhattan Project was through the 40s, right? Uh, Belgium was using slave labor until the 60s, and we knew this, so we might be the bad guys here, folks. Um, so as history history generally goes, especially around this time in the world, Lumumba was overthrown and killed in a hit ordered by President Eisenhower himself. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eisenhower said, this guy needs to be taken care of. Who'd he send? CIA. Oh. Uh, I thought his, he sent somebody cooler. Nah. Uh, his army chief of staff, Mabuto Sesi Seko, replaced him with full CIA support. And this is we catch back up to our story. So in 1961, a contingent of 155 Irish soldiers under the command of Commandant Pat Quinlan had been deployed into the small mining town of Jadoville. They were part of a larger 500-man Irish battalion sent to the Congo under the flag of the UN. And this wasn't the first time Irish soldiers had been deployed to the Congo for the UN. This is actually something they took pr- pride of, that they were important peacekeepers. Right. It was their thing. Um, but the last one actually left nine Irish soldiers dead, and it shook the nation to its core if they should keep supporting this right. thing. And I know what you're thinking. Nine dead people is like nothing uh, because we're sitting 17 years deep into the global war on terror. This is something that Americans are kind of used to now. Right. Um, you need to look at the Republic of Ireland as a whole. They're a strictly neutral country throughout most of their existence. They, they were actually neutral before World War II. So war isn't exactly something that they're used to. They were actually so neutral during World War II that when Hitler killed himself in 1950, uh, 1945, Ireland sent Germany its condolences. <laughs> yeah. Here's your Hallmark card. Yeah, they're like... Because they're neutral, I mean, if somebody else has had a state that you're not shooting at dies, you're going to 
sent a fucking greeting card. Right. That's what I mean. I did. Wouldn't. They also never joined NATO and excused themselves almost entirely from the Cold War until they managed to find themselves right in the middle of it anyway. Nice. Um, so with the apparent order to protect its white inhabitants from possible contanganese attack, which should show you how out of touch the UN's mission was, uh, Pat Quinlan's force was sent in. The town was about 100 kilometers away from the main UN base at Elizabethville, the self-styled capital of Katanga. The only downside, of course, was there was only one bridge connecting the capital to Jettoville, meaning that any supplies or support would have to come across that one bridge. So Can't- I also want to point out, I know for a fact that when they were getting shipped over to uh, Africa, mm-hmm. the army looked at them like they were Boy Scouts. Effectively, yeah. Yeah, like, who the fuck are these guys? They kind of look like... They still had the whole ob- hobnail boots, mm-hmm. all the old shit, the forest greens. Yep. They had bolt-action rifles for a little bit until they got supplied with those FALs. Well, when they got on scene, they, uh, they actually got the— Those more, Belgian the, FALs. Yeah, the new modern F- FN FALs, which is an assault rifle or a battle rifle for people who aren't super into weapons. Right. Um, but that's about the most modern as this force got, as you'll right. see in a little bit. Um, if you can't see the issue with separating your force with only one bridge— Congratulations, you're now promoted to UN High Command. Bam, 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 bam. Pat Quinlan was a regular Irish Army officer of no real note. He was born in 1919 in County Kerry, and by all accounts, he's a bland, if uninspiring, commander. Um, according to the book Siege at Jettoville, uh, which was the main source used that I used for this episode, um, his soldiers were not exactly impressed with him. Um, but uh, he was just a regular officer out of officer's candidate school. I'm just still hoping they get Belgian waffles. Oh, they're going to make some motherfucking waffles here in a bit. Fluffy. Um, but Pat Quinlan was not a dumb man. Uh, the area in Jettoville where his unit had been sent, there is few uh, nondescript farmhouses that other UN soldiers had rotated through in the months prior to include another Irish detachment. And he was surrounded by open fields on all sides that were simply overgrown with thick weeds and some dead trees. He knew he was standing in a perfect killing zone. He just had to build it. He ordered his soldiers to dig in. Mind you, they all thought he was nuts because none of the other UN soldiers who had been stationed here had done so much as bother to fill sandbags. Um, let alone <laughs> they're fucking chilling, dude. Let alone dig trenches to defend themselves. And I guess I should point out that the nine soldiers who were uh, killed prior, who were from Ireland, did not die in Jadoville. Didn't they die from some type of? Uh they were ambushed. Cannibalism? No, what? No, they were they were uh, killed via. Uh, they were ambushed well, while rep- uh, repairing a bridge. Right, and they couldn't find some of the bodies. Yeah, and there's some. There, there's a, a fair amount of um, native racism that goes in because people insist that they're cannibalized yeah. or mutilated. Mutilated certainly isn't is an, is an option here uh, because it was the Baluba and Luba tribal areas that they were missing in, um, which. I mean, there's no evidence that they would have cannibalized anybody. And they were still led by white officers. And as you'll see coming up, that the white officers kind of kept their African soldiers in check. Right. As far as it comes to, like, eating people. Oh. Um, So, you know, it's kind of a gray area. It's one of those things that's kind of like... Whenever there's any kind of combat in Africa that um, they're savage natives, they're going to fucking cannibalism gets thrown around. Okay. Right. So that totally plays in because the some of the documentaries I've seen where the newspapers say, oh, cannibalism to the to the nine soldiers. And there's only, I think, one left from the patrol that went out that day. 
like some of them were cannibalized. I mean, I would say mutilations are uncommon. Uh, I yeah, mean, no, it, yeah. As we have reported on several occasions, battlefield mutilations are really something that only went out of style in the last maybe 100 years. And they still happen. No, yeah, it's fairly common. Yeah. I mean, I just find it. The last thing we covered from Africa was oh, General yeah, Butt yeah. Naked with cannibalization. So right. obviously I took into it like, oh, they were cannibalized. I can believe that just from what I know. And that's not super unsurprising um, at all when you – it's a tribe in Africa, but it's a much different tribe from a completely different part of Africa. Okay, yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. So they're real. I mean, a lot of um, what fueled Butt Naked's cannibalism was his religion. Right. Um, or so he said. And so Well, everything that he said went on to his religion. Right. And Satan and all that. Yeah. Um, so it, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Um, so even other UN commanders mocked Quinlan for this, uh, for digging in, and Quinlan just didn't give a shit. His soldiers dug fighting positions all around the area and reinforced the houses that they were staying in. Um, and that would probably be where this whole story would end is one random Irish commander getting a wild hair up his ass and digging an entire company. If the UN go and piss off the entire Contanganese government Hmm. on 13 September, the UN decided they were done with the whole peacekeeping thing. And then went instead to get into the business of peace enforcement and lots operation Morther in attempt to bring an end to the successionist Contanganese in one fell swoop. Yeah. The UN went on the offensive. Yeah. Um, it was badly thought out operation that was so half-assed the general secretary of the UN himself didn't know about it, and several member states of the UN were not even consulted. Holy shit. Yep. Yeah. Um, no communication. Not at all. And you have to think, the UN did not have the things that you would expect of a military body in 1960 to have if they're going to launch an offensive operation. No air cover, no artillery, yeah. things like that. Uh, they didn't have any of that. Other uh, than sweet blue berets right. going across the fields. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that Morther was so badly bungled is that it was planned, commanded, and led by a guy named Connor Cruz O'Brien, who is sometimes known as the Cruiser, which is nice. definitely a nickname sweet he gave himself. <laughs> That's yeah, so- I'm the Cruiser. Right. <laughs> Nobody's like, yeah, bro, you're the Cruiser. No, he gave that fucking nickname they, to himself. They used to call me the Cruiser. Yeah. Yeah, you can call me like when you played Cruiser. When he played football in high school or whatever. So O'Brien was uh, an Irishman baseball. himself and was in charge of the entire UN mission to Congo. He was a politician, a historian, and a writer. You'll notice that none of those things is a, quote, military officer or a commander. Of any kind. But a sweet nickname. He's never been in charge of any military operation ever. And instead, uh, he is now planning an operation to crush the Contanganese government, which, mind you, is supported by untold millions in Belgian money and, yeah. and mercenaries. And But no, the cruisers got it. The cruiser. <laughs> yeah. uh, to make matters worse, the UN soldiers on the ground not directly involved in the operation were not even told about it. Oh. Yeah. They wouldn't fucking blind as fuck. Well, not necessarily that. Uh, so the Indian uh, troops and uh, the other Irish troops were heavily involved in Morther. They knew about Morther. Okay. Um, but the other troops, such as Alpha Company, stuck out in Jadaville, were not told about it at all. These are things that he they definitely need to know about um, because you know the entire Native population around them is about to get pissed off. Yeah. Um, 
So with their c- capital under attack, the Cantagnese went straight back at those blue helmeted bastards who, need I remind you, are not supposed to be taking sides in the conflict per their charter and original agreement. Right. And this is an, this is an agreement that was also agreed by by Shambay in the Cantagnese government. Otherwise, he wouldn't have wanted them there. And it's also not even a good blue color. It's like a baby blue. Yeah. Powder like, blue. Yeah, it's Powder like just blue. below teal. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, not even it good. It only exists in paint swatches from like Home, Home Depot. Home Depot, yeah. Uh, what better target than these Irishmen sitting out in the middle of nowhere, right? Uh, so not a lot is known about the Canadianese military that was lined up to fight Quinlan's men. But what is known that much like the force public, it was commanded by white men of various nationalities due to Katinga's vast mineral wealth. They're op- able to open up their wallets and pay just about any mercenary that would swing by. This included French, South Africans, Belgians, and Americans who would, and who would be commanding the Katinganese force. Anybody can get this work. Let's go. Yep. So the person commanding that force which was much more proven and better educated than Quinlan. Rene Falks was born in December 14th, 1924 in France and had been involved in fighting wars all over the world since World War II. He fought as a member of the French Free First Army and received a croix de guerre from his actions in combat. He was noted for his ability and admitted to the École Militaire in Saint-Serre for officers training. Should be noted, this is the same school founded by Napoleon I and had alumni such as Philippe Patin, Charles de Gaulle, and Jean de Latre de Tassigny. So, a dumb guy is not getting in here. After he graduated, he became a paratrooper officer in the French Foreign Legion, and he fought in both in Vietnam and Algeria, getting wards piled up on him wherever he went. Eventually, he put in leave. He put in leave so he could go help the Cantonese government. What the fuck? <laughs> He was a brigade commander at this point. I'm about to go on leave, and I'm not going to go do any type of shit like that. Right. And since he was still technically a legionnaire, he brought as many legionnaires as he could to fight with him to make the money, which (laughs) which could have included at least a thousand of them. Holy fuck. The numbers are murky, and no one is exactly sure how many he had, and Fox isn't talking. I'm still wondering why waste leave days on that. Right. I'm about to go get fucked up on leave. Yeah. Along with well-trained and battle-hardened white officers were thousands of Luba and Baluba tribesmen of unknown quality of training. Though we can assume, going off prior force public standards, they at least got something that resembled basic training. Uh, Conservative estimates put the soldiers facing Quinlan's company at around 3,000 men. Other sources put the number at around 5,000. They are also much better armed than the Irish. The only bright spot of the Irish arsenal was their rifles, having recently received the modern FNFAL battle rifle. Their only heavy machine guns were World War I-era water-cooled Vickers machine oh, guns. Fuck. To support those, they had World War II vintage Bryn Light machine guns. They also had a few 60-millimeter mortars, but only limited ammunition. This being 1960, body armor was very rare and normally incredibly heavy, so it wasn't uncommon for them to be without it. But what they didn't have was helmets, um, which had been standard issue for Irish soldiers since World War One. So they had the sweet blue berets. Instead, the helmets that had been issued to them were fiberglass ceremonial helmet covers. Holy fuck. Oh, so the liners. And completely useless. So you have liners, as we see here. Right. He These has this. Old, shit. He has this old, uh, yeah... Was it steel pot from World War II? It's an old M1 helmet from World War II. It's a fixed bail. So it, go ahead you know and explain what the II. fuck that means. All right. I don't know if I want to because you could really go into it. Well, you already brought it up. Just make it simple. 
So an old fixed bill is what they used during World War II just after the 1917 helmet and the 1917 A1 helmet that they used uh, prior. So around this time, they started utilizing these old steel pots that kind of look like fucking giant bowls. And they started throwing fiberglass uh, liners in it with suspension in it. So you would have some type of comfort while you're wearing it. So you weren't wearing a a cooking pot on your head. Basically, but it did absolutely nothing. Right. It's fiberglass. Exactly. um, Even the steel pot was shit. Right. But it it would stop shrapnel, things like that. To an extent. Like even in World War One, they found when they uh, issued out those... Uh, I forget what the helmets were called, the Doughboy helmets, the the Adrian helmet that the French had. They found their casualties from head injuries went down significantly. Well, our poor Irish boys in 1960 didn't even have that luxury. No, they had this piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah, so they tossed them aside. Um, And also, they only had one radio that worked that would occasionally... Ooh, that sounds like a field problem. (laughs) Well, they had one uh, radio that worked Barely. That would get them in contact with headquarters. <laughs> Quinlan had no way to communicate towards his various positions, and they were stretched incredibly thin, as the area they were forced to defend was the size of two football fields, and they were one company of soldiers. And because Operation Morther, they would have no reinforcements, and the UN forbid any kind of artillery or air support at the time. I would imagine only having one bridge would be a really big problem for reinforcements. Trying to yeah. get to them. Oh, that happens. Yeah. We'll find out about it. Uh, the Contagonese soldiers were instead armed with modern weapons to include rifles, machine guns, and much larger 81 millimeter mortars. They also Ooh. had several trucks armed with heavy machine guns so they can, you know... Um, have something resembling mobile weapons platforms. So you can, you can kind of see why folks thought they would just steamroll right over these Irish guys. Um, so on the morning of September 13th, around the same time that the UN launched their operation, the Contagonese moved in for the kill. The majority of Irish soldiers were not on the line. However, as being good Catholic boys, they were attending mass, which is exactly why folks picked this time to launch the attack. I know what you're probably thinking right now. How the fuck did folks know that they're at mass? Well, I kind of do. Yeah, because the entire town of Genoville itself was spying on the Irish soldiers the entire time. The white Belgians they had been sent to protect needed no protection whatsoever since they are containing these loyalists. And since the first day Quinlan's men had started digging, they had been funneling intelligence back to folks and in some cases outright joining his army. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't even need to be there. Yeah. Um, their plan was foiled by a young private with the very appropriate name of Billy Reddy, who was standing on watch. Was he ready? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, when he saw the approaching force numbering around 600 men Ooh, and, that's and, a lot. and including four trucks with machine guns mounted, he fired his rifle into the air to alert the others, after which he immediately began engaging the enemy. The pious soldiers rushed from mass into the prepared positions and immediately began to fight back. Quinlan's early thought about the area being turned into a killing ground ended up being right. As the only thing the Contagonese could do was assault their positions over open ground in human waves. The Vickers, though older than dirt, chewed through the Contagonese easily and pushed them back after only a few minutes. I can see my old Catholic leader back when I was in fucking Catholic school lose his shit if you leave mass early. Well, I mean, the priest that was there was actually a member of the military as well. And uh, there was a note in the book that uh, when it all started, he tried to rush out in the middle of it and calm everybody down. What? Yeah. And uh, Quinlan had to like shove him into a trench. That sounds like my fucking. Yeah. Uh, so his wife used to teach my class. She was a straight cunt. She's a straight bitch. <laughs> nice self censorship. So much. Because, all right. 
not gonna lie, me and my brother and a few of my friends in Catholic school used to write on uh, the walls in the church with crayons. Well, crayons are like washable. N- yeah, not to them. <laughs> they think it's a sin. <laughs> they for were seared on do. by the power of the devil. Basically, like it just burned into the building, <laughs> and you had nothing to wash it off with. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, uh, wait, do you say your Catholic priest had a wife? Yeah, he did. Doesn't make any sense. Which is really weird, right? Are you sure you're Catholic? I was. <laughs> because they're not allowed to be married. Exactly. <laughs> but he fucking... Wait, right. is it like... Is Roman Catholic different than like Mexican Catholic? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I just know I went to Catholic school. Because I know Roman Catholics aren't allowed and to be married. Dude, that's why they end up fucking boys all the time. When, <laughs> that's why you touch them first. Because the time is now, <laughs> you, old man. <laughs> you assert your dominance and rape them first? Yeah. Jesus. But uh, basically... Uh, Sundays we'd see the husband there giving the sermon and then every day we'd see her, which was his wife. We don't know if it was technically his wife, wife or his anything. Side, his or godly his, side piece. Or his slam piece or something. <laughs> so but, if anybody listening knows what the fuck religion Nick is talking about right now, please slide into our DMs. Yeah, please, because I didn't pay attention a lot in Catholic <laughs> school. I got in trouble a lot. Wouldn't it be some shit if this whole time you were accidentally in a madrasa and you never knew? I'd be really fucking freaked out if I was in some type of cult because it wasn't a gated community. They accidentally joined the children like, of what God. What fuck am I in? Why am I wearing this matching tracksuit and giving this Kool-Aid? Um, <laughs> Flavor-Aid. Flavor-Aid, sorry. Flavor-Aid. Uh, so, getting back at Target before we delve into more deeply about Nick's former cult life, uh, the Contanganese were actually not... Uh, but really tell me what I'm in. Yeah, please. I'm really curious now. I never thought about it until yeah. I was an adult. We'll just assume that you're in like I've been the to church Jesuits in like twelve or something. years. I haven't been to church in twelve years. So I haven't been to church since I was at least like eight or nine. Nice. Yeah. The Armenian Orthodox Church really sucks. Was gonna make a make a bad really bad joke, but I'm not now. <laughs> uh so the Katagnese launched repeated attacks throughout the first day. Uh, and much like the first 600 minute a time, uh, but the Duggan Irish simply would not budge. And each time the attack would break against their line. Like, you can't get their lucky charms. Nah, man, they're protecting that shit. Uh, and I, it's hard to believe how well the Irish did, even though yeah. they dug in. I mean, the Vickers is a solid machine gun. As long as it, you feed it ammo, it's going to fire. I would rather have better... Sure, 1960. Sure, I, I mean, it, I wouldn't want some old World War One piece of shit running around. I mean, in the 60s. Y- yeah, but I would much rather have literally any modern machine gun. You even see that till the 90s, where oh, yeah. we hold stuff like the grease gun for tankers in yeah. the 90s. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, it's not unheard of. No, if it's broken, it if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Exactly. Uh, you could almost say that about the 50 cal. Yeah, the Madu still the, works wonderful. The M2, yeah. Um, and that's why they still use it to this day. Exactly. It was once created to shoot down planes, now it shoots down people. Huzzah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but Quinlan knew he couldn't hold them off forever and radioed the headquarters for support. Headquarters. Now, this is shown as some like dramatic argument in the movie, uh, which is on Netflix. It's Which I haven't seen yet. It's because you suck. Um, well, because we were supposed to watch it and you didn't want you to. You have Netflix at home. <laughs> Who do I watch it with? My roommate? Your dog. I guess. Yeah. Uh, so in, in the movie, it's shown that this is some dramatic argument 
between uh, UN Command and uh, the cruiser and Quinlan. Um, but the book, it just notes that uh, after Quinlan was told that nothing was available to assist him, Quinlan responded, we'll hold out until our last bullet. We could use some whiskey, though, which is solidly on brand. He is Irish. We'll send old crow down his way. (laughs) Help him fight like a crow. Uh, Now the Contanganese got pissed, seeing that all of their frontal assaults were failing. They wheeled up several 75-millimeter field guns. Holy fuck. And proceeded to bombard the living shit of the Irish positions with direct and indirect fire before launching their frontal assaults. Didn't matter, though, because each time they were beaten back by the Irish. Quinlan then ordered his support platoon to take out their mortars. Um, see, before they were operating under strict rules and guidelines that said they couldn't shoot uh, unless they were fired at, and even then they could only engage with targets they could see. Um, from the obvious definition of indirect fire, you're not going to see their mortar exactly. units. And in the movie, it shows them moving the mortars up on the back of trucks to be fired, which is outright stupid. Way to spoil it for me. Well, in the movie, it shows them being like maybe 300 meters out, and they're like wheeling these fucking flatbeds up with mortars on the back, and which is insane. That's not how mortars work. Is it like a white Toyota that you see? In- of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Figured. And these are 81 millimeter mortars. I don't know what their maximum effective range is, but it's certainly more than what you can see. Um, So effectively, Quinlan said, fuck the rules, shell those bastards, because the mortars were eating them up. Uh, It was only a matter of time before the mortars scored a direct hit and won the trenches and killed half of platoon. Um, Quinlan finally told him to fire, and the Irish mortarman scored a lucky hit, dropping a shell right onto the Contanganese ammo dumps and annihilated the entire enemy mortar positions all at the same time. They really did have Sounds their like fucking four-week clover. Dude. And you know what's funny is part of their uniform was an armband, uh, almost like MPs would wear, that said Ireland, but also had a four-leaf clover. Oh, those fuckers. <laughs> and that's they, they used the full strength of the four-leaf clover on that one. <laughs> By this time, the white officers... In the Contanganese Army, which I guess I should note was known as the Gendarmerie, uh, which is an old timey term for that like really familiar. military police. Okay. Um, the Gendarmes in France, yeah, in Belgium okay. are the military police. That's where um, I'm getting it from. But it was more just like an army. Um, they lost control of their native troops in the face of the massive losses. The Luba tribesmen saw a field completely littered with their corpses. And uh, whenever they were urged forward and the Irish to fire them, they'd break and run. Uh, several Irish sh- soldiers report seeing their white officers shooting their own Luba tribesmen in an attempt to keep them in line. Falks, admitting defeat, finally asked for a temporary ceasefire to cre- collect all his then wounded, and Quinlan, being a gentleman, agreed. It is estimated that the Contanganese had over 1,000 casualties at this Fuck. point. The Irish, they had between 5 and 10 wounded, zero killed. Yeah, to my understanding, the whole time they had nobody killed. Nobody. That Which single is person. fucking insane. Yep. Through the whole time. Now, finally, after three days had passed of this, the UN finally got off its ass and decided to launch a counterattack to try to rescue Quinlan's trapped company. So around 500 Irish, Indian, Swedish, and Gurkha soldiers based in Kamina set out for Jadoville. How far is Kamina? Yeah, about 50 kilometers. Um, but this brings us to Kamina Bridge, which is that one bridge yeah, that, that separated them. It was the only route that the main UN force could get at Quinlan's company. The Contanganese knew this because they're not stupid and dug in all around it. Well, I imagine anybody with 
some type of right. any and, military background would understand this is where they're going to come from. And f- even if you take the incredibly well-educated French legionnaire brigade commander out of the mix, anybody that could run two brain cells together knows this is the only way they're going to come from. Exactly. But when you have someone like Rene Falks in charge, that place is going to be a fucking death trap. Yeah. A huge choke point. Yeah. So they turn the bridge into a giant kill zone. To make matters worse, this is also around the time that everyone discovered that the Katanganese had an air force. Oh, they're fucking jets. <laughs> a single jet, reportedly pi- piloted by a Rhodesian mercenary, though some sources say he was Belgian, began to attack the rescue column, who was now stranded on the road. Now, this is some um, Mirage um, training aircraft. Oh, like a French Mirage? Yeah. yeah okay. But it was a training aircraft. Right. It, was, it was what was supposed to be so, used to teach people how to be pilots. Not outfitted. For armament. Oh, but they but did. It <laughs> they outfitted about but it did. <laughs> four 50 caliber machine guns and several bombs. Yeah. Um, so it could wreak some havoc, especially when I'm assuming this is a force that brought zero anti-aircraft. UN? Yeah, I would, I would see that. Because why would not, they? Yeah, they don't need that type of shit. But then all of a sudden this motherfucker comes in. All right. With a sweet ass Mirage. Because yep. honestly, I like the way the Mirage looks. Well, this is like the baby Mirage. It's not like so the it's cool not like looking the actual one. Cool no, looking no, one. it's like so. From what I understand, um, when you go through, when you become a pilot, or when you're in school to become a pilot, you go through like several months oh. of classroom training and simulators and stuff like that. This is the first thing you so actually get to fly. I know about the T six trainers that the Americans use. I would assume this is about the same thing. Oh, so it's like the fucking oh, so oh, okay, yeah. never mind. Made by the same company though. So we're gone. Yeah, sorry. Um, so. After suffering multiple wounded and a few dead, the column was forced off the road, and once again, Quinlan's company was on its own. The fighting was on once again back at Jettoville, and now that the bridge was clear, the jet turned its attention toward the stranded Irishman. Uh, they had no weapons that could be remotely right, yeah. effective against a jet, but the jet was dumb. Whoever's flying, whether it be Rhodesian or Belgian, um, had a, he thought quite a bit about himself. He started making very, very low passes on the Irishman. And it was then that uh, was it slow or fast? Did they ever? Well, I imagine it was slow enough for him to target dummy bombs onto them because okay. you know there's definitely no laser guided munitions on board. He's just letting them loose and they're flying. Uh, and Quinlan was smart enough to direct company fire onto the jet. Um, and in some accounts that you'll read, it's definitely slow enough that uh, that the Irishman just shoot down the jet. And the book shows that that didn't happen. But they did damage it enough that uh, that the jet stopped making low passes. Holy fuck. So, I mean, in the movie, it actually shows Quinlan overturning oh, a Jeep. Another spoiler alert. Yeah. He, over, he overturned a Jeep, so the Vickers was pointed straight up and fired on it then. Uh, that's probably not historically accurate. No, but it looks cool. It does. But I um, will say. But they did direct. And now company fire is a term used where every weapon in the company fires was one on thing. Okay. Yeah. So even though, um, and, and uh, there was the Contanganese forces on the other side of the field, the Contanganese didn't want to get anywhere near this area either because the jet was attacking it. So they were able to direct all their fire on one jet. That's kind of funny. So, God damn it. Where the fuck was I going with this? I don't know. God damn it. No, uh, you How saw stuff like this. You can see some pictures of a World War II version of this. Oh, there we go. In the Soviet Union when like all the dudes are laying on a hill with their mo- Mosin the Gans pointing up at the sky. No, yeah. 
So they'd put bipods up on foots in like full extension yeah. and start trying to shoot at it. Like they were anti-air. But uh, I want to go into one of the veterans that I know, which is Wilbur. And uh, Wilbur. You could say it like that because that's how he sounded. He looked at me. He's like, oh, little Mexican boy. Here's some French fries when I first met him. That's weird. Well, he, he gave me French fries when I was a little I guess, boy. I guess he knew that uh, you're a uh, second Mexican Empire loyalist. Essentially. <laughs> but he was a ball turret gunner in a B-17. And he was one of the first to encounter 262s, ME 262s. Mm-hmm. and Which is the first ever operational jet if uh, nobody's keeping track at home. Uh, by the Germans. Right. And he said they would see him fly straight across they didn't know what the fuck to do they yeah. kind of just looked at it at first so for them to get to that at that point in the 60s where they're like there's kind of nothing for us to do here yeah and, and it, there it, was nothing for them to do back then other yeah. than let's try to track it and that's you know it doesn't say how much damage was done to the jet i don't think much but honestly. it was enough to scare him away because you have to think, this is a trainer jet, so it's, the cockpit probably isn't armored. So he probably doesn't okay, want to get yeah, winged in the face. That. Yeah, no, I just forgot about that, that yeah. it was a trainer. Yeah. It's not a real Mirage. Yeah. Because if it was a real Mirage, it was fucking oh, screaming through if the... If this was an actual fighter bomber, Quinlan would have died. For sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, I figured it was done by Rhodesian or uh, Belgian. Yeah, whoever it was, uh, the, that's one... The, the accounts on the mercenary side are, are super varied um, because... Falks being a uh, quiet professional simply never talked about it until right. the day he died. Um, but the the book juggles that it might be Belgian, might be Rhodesian. Um, but the jet itself was Contanganese. They bought it from Belgium yeah, because it's a trainer jet. Why the fuck do they care? Um, so uh, now that they scared off the jet, the fighting on the ground is back on at the positions in Jettoville. Um, but the problem was they were running precariously low on ammo for the rifles, machine guns, and the ammo for the mortars had run out the day before. More importantly than that, though, they were actually out of food and water. And this is Congo. In the summer, uh, it is hot as fuck. Yeah. I have been to the Congo in the summer, and it is hot as fuck. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. It is, it, I mean, it, it is really hot with, like, 90% humidity. The only thing I can compare to that is... If some of you know is NTC, which is the National Training Center in California. It's like that, but with like 90% humidity. So while we were there, we were out of water for three days. So we had to ration our camelbacks, <laughs> which was horse shit. And I know you know what I'm talking about because yeah. we were essentially in the same unit. Yeah. Fucking terrible yeah. how they weren't able to get water to us. But not that surprising. It's not surprising at all, but it's still terrible. Yeah. Incompetence is uh, kind of their watchword. Very. Um, so, after several days, Quinlan begged and pleaded the UN for support, and he finally got it, actually. Uh, a, a helicopter piloted by a Swedish crew managed to deliver several barrels of water. Now, this wasn't ammo, and this wasn't extra men, and it wasn't exfiltration, but it was something that they desperately needed. The soldiers quickly discovered, though, that when they opened the barrels of water, they couldn't drink it. They had just been used to store fuel, and no one thought about checking them before Holy sending them out. fuck. Which is actually something that happened to me before. They gave us uh, jerry cans full of water that were contaminated with fuel. Holy yeah. shit. That'll, ki- that'll kill you. <laughs> that fucking sucks. Yeah. Um, this it says on jerry cans, too, 
fuel and they look completely different from yes. water jerry cans yes they the do. fuel ones have three and i will assume three fucking handles i will assume that this is mostly the same thing because jerry cans have been used to carry fuel and water oh, yeah. since world war one yeah from metal to now what we use is basically plastic fucking plastic yeah. for jerry cans it was the same thing the one handle is water yeah the three is fuel yep and it says fuel on it. Exactly. <laughs> and then you have units stenciling their shit on JP8. Yep. Fuel, essentially, for us. This ended up being the last draw for Quinlan. His soldiers are surrounded and stranded out in the middle of nowhere. The unit had stopped trying to support him in any way, shape, or form. And after getting their noses bloody on the, out on the bridge, they stopped trying to rescue him. They couldn't even send him water that he could drink without dying. And Quinlan knew, most importantly, his position was untenable. UN command also stopped communicating with them as their operation elsewhere in their country went to hell, meaning they just expected Quinlan's men to be wiped out and then would just move on with their life. Um, Connor Cruz O'Brien at this time is pretty nonchalant about the whole deal. Yeah. He's a fucker. And uh, you'll learn to hate him more here in a little bit. It was then on September 17th, 1961, that Folks offered Quinlan terms of surrender. After five days of battle, Quinlan accepted, seeing no other options available to him. Folks had expected to walk into a devastated area full of dead Irish soldiers, and his pilot actually told him that as much. Uh, they told him while during his flyover, he saw several body bags uh, behind the Irish positions, dozens of them. What they had actually been were sleeping soldiers inside of sleeping bags. And had, but had been reported as uh, body bags through Fox, through the Cantonese government, through international media, <laughs> and back to Ireland. Fuck. So the families of these Irish soldiers thought that they were all dead. <laughs> it's really funny. Fox was so amazed not to see a single Irish soldier that had been killed, and they suffered only around a dozen wounded. Meanwhile, Fox force was obliterated in the attacks at this point they only had about a thousand men left in fighting shape jesus now depending on which level of forces that you go off of this means he lost either three thousand or four thousand men um one day later on the 18th of september dag hammerschultz the un secretary general was killed in a plane crash in northern rhodesia it is generally accepted that Hammerschultz was assassinated by yeah. a combination of South African, Rhodesian, and Belgian interests for meddling in their Katanga experiment with ample evidence uncovered during the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission that the apartheid-era government had his plane shot down with the possible CIA assistance, with former CIA chief Alan Dulles saying, quote, Hammerschultz needs to be removed. I'm really glad you brought that up because I was about to bring up Rhodesia uh, yeah. with that one. So, it, this mission was never going to succeed. No. <laughs> Literally everybody was working against it. Um, Quinlan and his men were held captive for about a month as the Yon was forced to agree to a humiliating terms and the Katanganese received a huge prisoner exchange in, in exchange for captured mercenaries and money in exchange for the Irish soldiers. Um, now, during the time they were in captivity, they kept being told they were going to be you know shot. Uh, they were going to be executed. Right. But uh, they were actually treated incredibly well. 
Uh, they were allowed to shave. They had showers, oh, three okay. meals a day. But you know, I, oh by the way, we're gonna execute you. Never really happened. Um, <laughs> I have a hard time like actually a finger gun to the side. Oh yeah, by the way, yeah, I actually have a hard. This bullet. <laughs> I have a hard time believing that folks would have allowed them to be executed because by the end of the war, Rene Fox was effectively in charge of the gendarmes, and. He respected Quinlan. They'd actually met. Uh, it, it shows in the movie. It also points out in the book um, that um, in the in the city of or the town, cities is kind of a strong word of Jadoville, that um, Quinlan and Falks ran into each other before the battle oh. uh, because expecting that they are going to go into a friendly area, uh, Quinlan and his soldiers went into Jadoville to. Um, get supplies and stuff. Right. And they ran into Falks and several of his mercenaries at a bar. Um, Falks bought him a shot, uh, asked why he was there, vice versa. Uh, Quinlan asked why he was there. And they uh, parted on acceptable terms. Falks understood that Quinlan was a soldier and he was going to do what soldiers do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I have a hard time believing Falks is ever going to allow Quinlan and his men to be executed. Right. Um, I mean, and not only did they did he offer them a, 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 a terms of surrender on that last day there, he actually offered them several times before then. I almost see respect coming from either side. Oh, it was. It, it was more, I, th- I feel like there's certainly more respect coming from Falks because Quinlan saw them as mercenaries. Because okay. they were mercenaries. Like paid guns. Right. And, uh, and there's actually a point where, because um, there's, possibly thousands of legionnaires involved and there's a specific beret that legionnaires are given it's a green beret with the legion symbol on it that is incredibly important to them almost as important as their kepi blanc and uh there was two scouts who were scouting up ahead um, of the main gendarme force who were captured by quinlan's perimeter patrol they were in civilian clothes so per the Geneva Conventions with the Irish are signatory to, they were going to be executed as spies. Okay. Um, and there was actually stopped by Quinlan. Mm. Um, and he was going to let them go back. And uh, one of the Frenchmen said, uh, well, my friend is really concerned because he used to love his beret. They weren't concerned they were going to be executed. They were concerned that he was going to get his beret back. And so Quinlan made sure they got the berets back and sent them back unarmed to the gendarme lines. So there's, it, it's been shown throughout the entire conflict that uh, they're both going to treat each other with respect. Yeah. Um, nobody okay. shot each other's wounded. Um, nothing like that. Which might be the last recorded time in uh, the history of modern combat where this happened. Yeah. You don't see this anymore. No. Uh, they're, they were both, I mean, one was born in 1919, one was born in the 1920s. Uh, they're both products of a bygone era. Right. Um, so with that, the Irish soldiers returned home. Uh, the surrender terms being met and uh, the exchange being made. And they were pretty much ignored. The term at Jettoville Jack was actually used as an insult towards the Irish army because they had the gall to surrender. Yeah. I heard they got a shit ton of shit. Yeah. Just for surrendering because they didn't know the circumstances or anything that they were in that they were involved with. Right. And I mean... All they knew was, oh, they just surrendered. Well, Quinlan knew what Quinlan knew and he absolutely made the right decision in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. Um, What it came down to is, is it was an embarrassment for the Irish government. Not only was an Irishman in charge of the Congolese mission, uh, but hundreds of Irish soldiers were involved in Morthor, which is also a failure. Yeah. 
Um, so by and large, the, this entire time stamp area of the Congolese conflict is a massive failure with Irish names written all over it. Right. So it, maybe it was less than the, like you dishonored the Irish Republic because they don't have a martial history to speak of more as like you made the entire country look bad as yeah. long as the, as it, same with O'Brien, same with the entire UN mission. So we'll sweep this under the rug. Yeah. Um, well, because like you said, like this was UN's first big mission. Right. Not their first, but their big mission. So it's almost like they had to kind of make him. They tried to do something, but they couldn't. Right. And it's noted in the book that um, the reason why they weren't given a hero's welcome when they returned to Ireland was because they surrendered. Yeah. And um, by by rewarding their surrender, they would somehow make the UN look bad. Right. And, the, the, and to this day, Ireland is heavily involved in peacekeeping. Yeah. So you can kind of see where they're coming from. I guess if I was to play devil's advocate, I don't see it. I, mean, I don't know. So although a company, 35th Battalion, had tactically defeated a larger force at Jettoville. The Irish Defense Forces did not overtly acknowledge the battle. Quinlan and several... Uh, Quinlan had put several of his soldiers in for the Military Medal of Gallantry, which is Ireland's highest military award. So think of it as like the Irish version of the Medal of Honor. Right. For their conduct in battle. None of them were ever accepted. Mm. Uh, there had been some perceived shame that a company had surrendered or because of political and strategic errors demonstrated at higher levels, Quinlan eventually retired as a full bird colonel, but never saw overseas action again. The Irish soldiers who fought at Shadowville found that it was best for one's career to simply not mention the battle. Quinlan died in 1997, his service never being recognized, but his soldiers would not give up. Yeah. The veterans of Jadoville were dissatisfied that the defense forces refused to acknowledge the battle and that there was an implied black mark on the reputation of their commander, Quinlan. And it should be noted, before they deployed, they actually didn't like the guy. Yeah. But all of them said in interviews afterwards that we would all have died if it wasn't for him. Yeah. Um, the veterans like said, of A yeah. Company reportedly regarded, him, reportedly regarded him as an exceptional officer who had saved the lives of his men by ordering them to dig in and who successfully led his company against an overwhelming enemy force. He was forced into an impossible situation by the failings of UN leadership, and against all odds, he had saved the lives of each of his men in battle they had not expected nor planned for. Finally, in 2004, after decades of campaigning, the Minister of Defense, Willie O'Day, held a full review of the battle and cleared Quinlan and all of his soldiers of any soldierly misconduct from surrendering. The unit was awarded the Presidential Unit Citation in 2016, the first and so far only in the nation's history. Now, Quinlan's actions at Jettoville are not only world-renowned, having been turned into a book and now a movie, uh, both of which I recommend, actually, uh, they are now taught in Irish Defense Academies as a perfect example of perimeter defense. Oh, gotta watch it. Yeah. Uh, the book is better than the movie, though I will say the book starts off really dry. Um, it took me two attempts to get through it. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now our footnotes to wrap up this episode and uh, to make you upset. So I'll bring you back to the cruiser. O'Brien resigned from the UN in disgrace and went on to write a book called To Contanga and Back. The book put all of the blame on literally everybody else and excused him from any wrongdoing. <laughs> uh, during it's a total the, donkey. Yep. Yeah. He he is definitely the fucking donkey. If there is if there is a pr- to bring back a saying, 
uh, uh, of pralines and dick. Quinlan is the pralines. Yeah. And O'Brien is a lot of dick. Um, Sona's butt Katangan back. He blamed literally everybody uh, except himself. And uh, because there's no justice in the world, he is alive and well to this day. He also <laughs> was elected to be a minister of parliament on several occasions. That's almost normal with the yeah. people that we cover. Yeah. Folks also survived the battle and exited the Legion in 1963, after which he set off on a mercenary career that would bring him around the world until he finally died in 2011. The state of Contanga would hardly last longer than the Battle of Jadoville himself, being reabsorbed back into the Congo by 1963. Um, so... Our sources for this episode, uh, as I said before, were the book The Siege of Jadoville, uh, and I cannot recommend it more. And there's a Netflix movie uh, based on it called The Battle of Jadoville, uh, starring Jamie Dornan, uh, which is, it's okay. Uh, it's You can kind of tell it's made on a budget because in a lot of occasions, like, nobody's firing their weapons at anybody. Uh, but it's it's not bad. I highly recommend it if you don't feel like reading a 300 and some change book about Irish military history and the Congolese crisis. Um, so that's our episode. Um, thank you for turning in. And uh, we have a special episode for you next week, and it will be our first multi-parter. So, uh tune in and watch me suffer through 100 pages of research on the war of 1812 if you want to hear about that uh thank you for tuning in please like review and share us on whatever social media thing that you uh prescribe to and rate us on itunes because it helps us immensely i thank you to everybody that has made the hooligans of kandahar still a number one ranked book in the entire country and Amazon. Uh, stay tuned. I am trying to set up something of a book tour in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, you don't have to buy a book to hang out. I will gladly give you a high five and a shot of Old Crow if you uh, would just like to talk about history. That's cool too. Uh, so you can follow us on Twitter at Lions Led By. You can follow me at JCast99. And you can follow Nick who just dipped out of the podcast because he had to take a piss at NickCastM1. And thank you for all of our Patreon supporters. Our podcast will always be free. Um, but if you want to throw us a dollar to show how, uh, show us that we're doing a good job, please do. Uh, and there's actually a poll going on now on our Patreon to pick a future topic. Uh, so I believe the choices are the Iran-Iraq war, Rhodesia and its Bush wars. Yep. And something I've already forgotten. But uh, right now... Because <laughs> that I, one hasn't been voted. Yeah, much. but uh, the Iran-Iraq war is winning, and I have no problem researching that for the future. Also, stay tuned to our future book club. We are reading The Storm Before the Storm by Mike Duncan, and I am almost done with it, and it is wonderful. So if you'd like to pick it up, please join us. Uh, if you don't, uh, you can tune into the episode where I talk about Roman history for the first time. Yeah, I uh, currently bought the ebook. That's something. Um... So thanks for tuning in and we will see you next week. Later.